0: Exodus chapter 15, we'll be studying verses 3 through 21, the rest of the the song at the sea. As Israel has come out of Egypt, the Egyptian army pursued them, but God parted the Red Sea and then God dropped the Red Sea on the Egyptians behind them. And this is the song that they sing in worship To God, and so we are seeking to learn what it is to worship God as we walk with God in the wilderness of this life. What do you worship God for? What is it about God that makes you want to worship Him? Do you worship God only because He's loving and kind? only because he's patient and merciful, only because he blesses you and gives you good gifts to enjoy in this life. Well, while none of those things are are, are wrong, I wonder how many of us would say we worship God because he is a man of war. He's a man of war. And that's not an unimportant question because that's exactly how our text today is going to describe God in this song of worship. When they sing worship to God, they speak of Him as a man of war. We'll see that in a moment. But I wonder how many of us even have a category for that in our minds, that that God could be a man of war. See, I'm convinced that the reason... Many Christians live little lives of worship and little faith is because they have in their mind a little God. We are tempted and some people give in to pick and choose what attributes and what actions of God they want to accept. Those ones that make them feel comfortable and safe. But to do that is to leave the rest of who God is behind. J.I. Packer put it this way. He says, we are like people who look at God through the wrong end of the telescope. So reducing him to pygmy proportions. And when you have a pygmy sized God, Packer explains, you end up with pygmy sized Christians. Ones who are weak, small, and lacking in worship. Or to paraphrase the way John Piper puts it, God is to be the sun in the solar system of our lives. Everything in our lives should be held in its proper orbit by the overwhelming weight and gravity of God. But when we shrink God down, when we minimize him down to a manageable size, he no longer carries enough weight or gravity in our hearts to hold us on our proper path. I don't know how many of you have studied solar systems lately, but that is why our world goes round, is because of the sun's weight, the sun's gravity. If the sun were to all of a sudden disappear or to shrink in size, all of the planets in our solar system would would just go flying out uh, into uh, who knows what, into nothingness. And so it is in our lives. When we make God smaller than he really is, shrink him down, our lives go off their path. And so do you want to worship God rightly? I asked the beginning, what do you worship God for? But if we want our worship to be worthy of God, we must look through the correct end of the telescope. We must let God be just as big as, As he really is, we must let God be God. And as Israel tells us here in Exodus 15, the Lord is a man of war. You can follow along in your Bibles. I'm not going to even try to do it on the screen. I always fail at that in bigger chunks. So Exodus 15, verses 3 through 21. Let's hear what it is that Israel worships God for. Verse 3, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury, And it consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome and glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are as still as stone. Till your people, O Lord... Pass by till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. Then, verse 19, we have a bit of commentary. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen That is God's word. Let's pray and ask God to to give us his grace here. Father God, it is tempting to pick and choose what about you we immediately like. It's tempting to pass over those attributes of you that make us feel Uncomfortable, But God, we do, we do not want to worship a God of our imaginations. We want to worship the God of the universe, our creator, our king, our savior. We want to worship you as you truly are. So Lord, would you help us today to learn how you are even a man of war? And how that is glorious and worthy of our worship and worthy of our praise, God. God, I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So there it was, right there in verse 3. The Lord is a man of war. And by the way, the very next... Uh, Part of that verse is the Lord is his name. So kind of the idea there is part of the essence of what it is for the Lord to be the Lord, Yahweh, I am who I am, is that he is a man of war. Now, for some of us, those words may be chilling or even scary or distasteful to think of God as a man of war. We think that to call God a man of war is to somehow malign his name, to somehow make him into a barbarian, a cruel tyrant. We think that a man of war could not at the same time also be good. But here's what I want to show you first. As we learn how to worship this God who is a man of war, I want to show you that it is because God is good that he is a man of war. And that's point number one in your notes if you're following along there. Man of war reflects God's unchanging goodness. Man of war reflects God's unchanging goodness. While you won't see the word good used in this song here in Exodus 15, the idea of God's goodness is pervasive throughout the whole song. You might say, well, how do you see the goodness of God in this passage? I I see God throwing horse and its rider in the sea. I see a bunch of violence. I see a man of war. But let me ask you this. Would you think that a police officer was very good if they turned a blind eye to all the crimes committed around them? What if they said, no, no, no. In the name of mercy, in the name of compassion, I'm not going to arrest thieves or murderers. I'm going to let them just go. You'd say, no, that's not a good police officer. That, that is a police officer who cares nothing about justice, nothing about morality, nothing about goodness, and nothing about the community which he serves. That would be a bad police officer. What about this one? Do you think... A parent would be very good if they let their children get away with everything in the name of love. This oftentimes happens, by the way. I just love them too much to discipline them. No, no, you don't love them enough. See, God has said, children obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. And so for a parent to say, ah, no big deal. Kids will be kids is to say that it doesn't matter to obey God. It doesn't matter to submit to God. And and it is not setting that child up for anything good. And it's because that parent is not very good. And so we know that wrongdoing deserves punishment. It is good to punish wrongdoing. God is perfectly holy. That means he is Morally without blemish. And and in fact, he is the standard of moral perfection. We see this uh, in, in verse 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness? Part of what makes God glorious is his holiness. The fact that he is the standard of perfection, but also inherent in that holiness, in that holy goodness, is that he holds his creatures to that standard. And when wrongdoing is committed, it is punished. That is what justice is. It is making wrongs right, it is giving what is deserved for wrongdoing. God would not be good if he were not also just. But God is a man of war. He makes war against sin and against sinners. At some level, we all love justice, don't we? We, we all love it when that mean manager at work finally gets fired. We, we all love it when the bully gets beat up by someone bigger. Now, we don't love that because we, we hate people and we want bad for them. We love it because we love justice. We love it because we know that a wrong has been done and justice needs to be paid. They shouldn't be allowed to get away with that any longer. And so we love it when justice happens. And this is who our God is. He is a man of war, and him being a man of war reflects his goodness, and goodness must uphold righteousness, and it must punish wrongdoing. So to say, how could God be good and a man of war at the same time is crazy because really it would what we need to say is: how could God be good and not a man of war? If he, if he weren't committed to holiness and righteousness and justice, it is the goodness of God, infinite glorious goodness of God that he pours out justice. And that's exactly what we see happen in or, or worshiped in God. I mean, th- th- there wasn't a single Israelite. I, I, I'm, I wasn't there. I don't know, but I would bet that there was not a single Israelite who, who turned around and saw the, the Egyptians in the sea and said, oh, those poor Egyptians, they are just they were so innocent and they're just the victims of God's anger, irrational anger. No, not, no one was saying that. They're all saying, who is like you, glorious, majestic, and holiness? You put out your hand and the earth swallowed. They saw God's justice. They saw that it was good and they loved it and they worshiped him for it. God is a man of war and that reflects his goodness. God does make war against sin and sinners. Now, my family has a dog. I know a a bunch of you have been to my house and you, you know the dog I'm talking about. Uh, one, one of the main reasons uh, that we got a dog was to, you know, protect our family. That's, that's just one of the main reasons the family get, gets a dog is to protect our family against intruders. Uh, but I think my wife and I picked the wrong dog. <laughs> uh, she, she's a golden doodle, so she's kind of just a bit of a doofus. I mean, honestly, if any of you have met her, she's just goofy. Like, it's awesome, and I, and I love it, but it doesn't make her a good guard dog. Uh, she, she's a pretty big dog, but for her size, she's like light as a feather. Her bones are little chicken legs, you know. And I'll tell you this, she is so friendly that she is more likely to kill an intruder with kindness than to actually bite them or do anything uh, cruel to them, you know, harsh to them, to stop them. And so uh, the, the the intruder would, would not only steal our stuff, they'd have a new friend in, the, in our dog. So... This, this is what I want to bring up to you. What what good does it do to have a dog with all bark and no bite? Nothing at the end of the day. In the same way, what good would it be to have a God who is very upset about sin, very bothered by sin because of his holiness, but he couldn't do anything about it. He couldn't actually uphold justice. He couldn't actually pour out punishment that is not the type of god i would want to worship and thankfully that's not the type of god the bible tells us that we have and specifically in this song the bible tells us that god is not only unchangingly good but number two man of war reflects god's unstoppable greatness I think of the goodness of God as reflecting his moral quality. But the greatness of God is about his might, his strength, and he is unstoppable. It's been said that there is no such thing as a fair fight with God. (laughs) There's no such thing as a fair fight with God. It's, It's not that God cheats. It's that God is so much greater than anyone or anything that would oppose him. There is no fight that God can't win, no opponent God can't defeat, no victory God can't secure. When God makes war, he wins. Every single time. God is a man of war. And what we'll see in this song is that it reflects his unstoppable greatness. Now, before I even look at, at God's unstoppable greatness in this song, I want to remind you that this was not a fluke. You know that this is, every dog has his day, right? Is what they say. So uh, maybe you got got a match up me and Douglas in basketball. Douglas should should beat me in basketball, but I happen to win. You know, and so we'd say, "Well, that was a fluke." With God, His victory is never a fluke. It is a consistent pattern from the beginning. You think about in Noah's day, right? The world was becoming increasingly wicked. The thoughts of mankind was only evil continually. And what does God do? Does he have to engage in this long, drawn-out battle? The people, you know, are winning, then he's winning, then the people win. No, he just drops a flood on the earth and wipes everyone out except for Noah and his family. That easy for God. Well, after that, you have the Tower of Babel. Right? You have these people who, who they believe themselves to be superior to God. They believe that they can even, you know, escape God's judgment. Most people believe that that's why they built this tall tower is to escape any future flood. And they were building this tower for the greatness of their own name up and against God. And so this was uh, the formation of a superpower that was anti-God, adamantly opposed to God. And so again, was there a long drawn out war when God looked down and said, okay, I need to take care of this. No, God simply confused their languages. They couldn't communicate anymore. Then the Bible says he spread them over all the earth. He just did it. This was not hard for God. Sodom and Gomorrah, again, this this city of sin, long drawn out battle? Nope. Fire and sulfur rained down. End of story. This is what God does. There are these evil powers that that rise up, this this momentum, this uh, collection of, of evil people opposing God. And what does God do? He says, guys, that's cute. And then he takes care of them. So with Egypt, getting our mind back on Exodus 15, with Egypt, you have the strongest military power the world had ever seen. You have them pursuing this, this kind of rogue nation of slaves the Israelites it's, it, it, you know by, by, by human standards it's quite clear who's going to win this fight but then listen to what God does uh, Exodus 4 or sorry Exodus 15 verses 4 through 10 just, just listen to how startling and how overwhelming is God's defeat Pharaoh's chariots And his host, that's his army, he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. I mean, this is supposed to be startling. This mighty, powerful army goes down into the depths like a stone. Verse 6, your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy It wasn't you you finally won a near loss, but you got him. No, your right hand shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble, like nothingness. The Egyptian army, God sends out his fury and it consumes them like Stubble. Verse 8 goes on. At the blast of your nostrils, the, wa- the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. Now listen to what the enemy thought. Verse 9. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. That's what they thought would happen. That's what Egypt thought would happen. And again, by human standards, that's really what should have happened. But, verse 10, you blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. I mean, again, this great vast army, and it pictures God fighting how? How? He blows and he sinks them in the sea like lead, like a stone. His fury consumes them like stubble. God is a man of war. And what that reflects is his unstoppable greatness. There is no enemy, no adversary who can overtake them. Now this was important for the daily lives of Israel, okay? This was not just mere theological knowledge, okay? Check God's unstoppably great. This was what they needed to live by. This is where they found their hope. Uh, Look at it in uh, verse 14 to 16. In the song, they sing this. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia, Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as stone. Okay, so in in those verses of that song, they've just listed their main enemies. These are the people who want to annihilate them, the nations that want to annihilate them. And these are most certainly the nations who want to keep Israel from taking the land that God had promised to them, namely the land of Canaan. And so they are now going to be out in the wilderness. What hope do they have? At some point, they're going to come to the promised land where all these great nations Dwell, what hope could they possibly have? Did Israel need a God who is only loving and merciful at this point? Did they need a God who is only compassionate and kind? While God is those things and those are a part of his glorious attributes, that is not all Israel needed at this time. They had real enemies. They had real wars ahead of them. And so they needed a man of war. And that's exactly how God had revealed himself to them against the Egyptians. They needed a God who was a man of war. And so the, the people see this and, and you can even see in verse 17 and 18 This is the confidence that's now been inspired because God is a man of war. Verse 17, you will bring Israel in and plant them on your mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. And so because God was an unstoppably great man of war, they knew that they would have protection Against their enemies. They knew that they would have victory over their enemies. And they knew that their God, the one who had become their God, their their strength and their salvation, their joy and their song, that he would reign forever and ever. This was their hope. This was great reason to worship God. He is a man of war. Now, this mattered for Israel, but it matters for you and me as well. Because, you know, we, we might be out of Egypt. We, we might have had our sins forgiven in a new heart and a new mind, but, but we're not in the promised land yet. We, we still got some wilderness wandering to do, and we still have enemies out there. We still have the Satan's demons who want to trip us up. They want to keep us out of the promised land. We still have Satan who prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And we even still have our flesh that wants to deceive us with sin. Our old man, as it's often called. There are still enemies. And, and here we are, wandering in the wilderness of this life, hoping to make it to the promised land, Hoping that one day justice and righteousness will reign, hoping that one day God will fully and finally take care of Satan and his demons and our sin. What hope do we have? Is this when we need a God who is only loving and merciful? A God who is only kind and compassionate? A God who will comfort us in our troubles? Look, I don't only need comfort, I need a man of war to be my God. I don't need someone patting me on on my back when Satan's beating me down. I need a God who can fight and defeat Satan. I need a God who can overcome my sin. This is the God of the Bible. He is loving, he is kind, he is merciful, but he is a man of war. Unstoppably great in carrying out his holiness, His justice. Now, it is an interesting thing that you have Egypt laying at the, the bottom of the Red Sea, and you have Israel on the banks worshiping God, because there, there should be some tension there. Uh, you know, was Israel not filled with sinners too? We need to remember that that it wasn't just Egypt that deserved God's punishment, his holy wrath. And and I think it's important for us as well to remember that it's not just those bad people out there that deserve God's wrath. I deserve it. And so do you. We have all sinned against God. We have fallen short of his glory. And we deserve the wages of God. Of our sin. But God is a man of war. And what I want to show you next is that man of war also reflects God's undeserved grace. His undeserved grace is also a part of what it is for him to be a man of war. You can see this first in, in uh, verse 13. It says, There, you have led. In your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed now there are two things we need to notice here two things that differentiated Egypt from Israel us from those who will spend eternity under God's wrath first God has given them his steadfast love now that that word steadfast love is actually just one word word in the Hebrew. It's the word hesed, and it's a particular type of love. You can look at the biblical usage of it uh, if you want to in the the Old Testament, but you'll see that in general, the hesed type of love is a merciful love, an undeserved kindness, and even a covenant choice to deal well with another. Uh, The very first uh, usage of this word I'm pretty sure it's the first usage is Lot when he's being dragged out of Sodom before the, the fire rains down he, he doesn't deserve it he, he's been living in that, that land of, of sin but because of Abraham Lot is chosen he is given Hesed, and he says I see that you have shown me Hesed. this is what that steadfast love is this isn't that Israel was so lovable that God couldn't help but, but, you know, keep his wrath off of them. Oh, I just can't do it. We've all said that, right, parents? Kids cute. I just can't do it. <laughs> They're too cute right now. Like, that was wrong, but it made me laugh. You know, and so we end up falling into that bad parent category I talked about in the beginning. Anyways, God's has said love is a merciful love, an undeserved love, a choice to show grace to another. This is what type of love God showed Israel. He granted them mercy when they deserve punishment. He granted them kindness when they deserve condemnation. He chose to bring them into a covenant of love when they deserved only His punishment. But you you say at this point, but I thought God was unchangingly holy, that he's unchangingly good and just. God cannot, because of his righteousness, simply brush that sin under the rug. How can God do this? How, How can you have the Egyptians under the sea and the Israelites on the side singing praises? Well, that's the second thing we need to see in that verse 13 up there. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. Again, that word redeemed just is so packed with implications. The word redeemed carries the idea of of a ransom or making a payment on the behalf of another. Again, you could look at the biblical usage of it. It is a ransom, a payment on behalf of another. And this is what Israel says God has done for them. He's put his covenant love on them and he has redeemed them. He has made the payment on their behalf. Now, this gets into a bit complicated waters, and I I struggled with how to to carry this out, but we've already learned about this Passover lamb, right? The the Passover lamb was a covering for their sin. We we talked about this, that that the blood of the lamb that was shed and that was on their doorposts was... was a picture, it was God took it as though it was the Israelites' own blood shed, justice poured out on that lamb as a substitute. Now we know that animals do not take away sin. They cannot be a perfect substitute because they are not not human. But, but Romans 3.23-26 to 26 kind of explains this whole conundrum of, of what's going on with Israel and what's going on with us. Romans 3.23, we hopefully all know this verse. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So that's Israel, that's Egypt, that's us, that's them out there. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Verse 24, and are justified by His grace. As a gift through the redemption. That's that payment on behalf of another. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You say, well, what does that have to do with Israel? Jesus wasn't going to come for another 1,400 years. Look at the next verse. Verse 25. Whom God put forward as a propitiation. That's a substitute sin bearer. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Here we go. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. So that's talking about people like Israel all of the Old Testament saints, God in his divine forbearance passed over punishing their sins because he knew what would be accomplished in Christ. They trusted in him. For, the, for Israel, they trusted God and his way of salvation, this Passover lamb that represented some other true substitute sin bearer. In his divine forerance. he had passed over former sins. Verse 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time. So, so before it was to show his righteousness in the past, but now it's to show his righteousness at the present time, including us, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is what happened at the cross. I, I know we think of Jesus as the suffering servant, and he was. But we need to remember he was also a man of war. On the cross, God was making war on our sin And on our enemies. On the cross. Jesus was bearing the punishment we deserve. You could say this is God's war tactic. That rather than pouring out his wrath on us. And crushing us with it. He pours out his wrath on his son. That's a tactic. That's a war tactic. In order that he might bring this redemption in order that he might pay on our behalf and bring us to himself. But we also know that that not only was he defeating our sin on the cross and its punishment, he was defeating Satan. At the cross, Jesus disarmed Satan. Now he's still out there and he's still got power and and you you still don't want to listen to his lies you still want to fight him with the word of god yes but he cannot ultimately con- condemn you he cannot bring any charge against you why because you have been stamped justified righteous holy you say but i haven't been righteous and holy and perfect and no it's it's jesus righteousness it's it's jesus righteousness again this is what happens On the cross, he takes our sin. When we trust in him, we receive forgiveness because it's already paid for on the cross and we receive his righteousness. And so, friends, we need to understand that the love of God, the kindness of God, the mercy of God, all of those things are meaningless and worthless if God is not a man of war. He might love you, but he can't do anything for you. If that's all your God is, I would say, I don't want to go to your heaven. He's so merciful that he turns a blind eye to sin. Look, I don't want the, the heaven that, that, that I live in to be filled with sinners. I'm already one. I'm already around them. I already know what that's like. And it's not not all that great a lot of times. God is going to Bring justice and righteousness. There will be no more sin, no more sorrow in this world that God is bringing. Now it's interesting. If you want to turn in your Bible to Revelation chapter 15, Revelation chapter 15, John is seeing a revelation of the future. What will happen? I, I, don't, I don't think I have this in slides. No, I don't. So Revelation 15, this is what John says, and I, I love this. He says, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. So this is the justice of God. We talked about that. His goodness and His greatness bring justice, His wrath. Verse 2, and I saw what happened, or sorry, and I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast in its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. Listen to this, and they sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. We'll, we'll read that song of the Lamb, of the Lamb in just a moment. But, but think about this. John sees a picture of the future. And he sees this sea of glass mingled with fire. And that's, that's, that's where the, the beast is. That's where those who oppose God are. That's where his enemies are. They are crushed in this sea that is now smoothed over like glass. And what you have is the redeemed, they're standing on the banks of that, that, that fiery sea, but they have passed through unscathed. I mean, th- this is a picture, what, what, what we're being told here is that what happened back in the book of Exodus with the Red Sea crossing and the, the crushing of the enemies and the praise of God, that will happen again one day with the ultimate enemies, Enemies far greater, more destructive, more annoying than Egypt. God will crush them behind us. We can have assurance of this because he did it already. (laughs) He did it to the Egyptians. He'll do it again. And we will sing the song of Moses, the song that we're studying in Exodus 15, and the song of the Lamb. I'm going to read that song. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. Did you hear that? That's the very same theme. Of our of our of our song in Exodus, His holiness, His justice. He is glorious altogether. And, and I just want to tell you from, from my own experience, when we remove the glory of God's fearsome holiness, we diminish His love and His mercy. If sin's not that big of a deal, if God's not that angry at sin, then his love isn't that big of a deal. His mercy, hmm, you know, whatever. But it is a big deal. God is good and he's a man of war. He's unstoppably great. But he has chosen to fight for us instead of against us by his grace. This should leave us Lead us to worship. I remember growing up, I had a more uh, scary version of God. Like that's the, that's the version of God I did know. <laughs> the God who's waiting to get you. Um, that, that was the, the God I had in my mind. Uh, later on in my life, I sort of just stopped worshiping God. I grew disinterested in him, disenchanted with him. Uh, angry at him in, in many ways, actually. and so uh, gave myself to sin. and, and I, I was uh, on the path to hell, quite honestly. Like if I'd have continued on, on that path, um, I, I know where my end would have been. But it was interesting that like in the midst of all that sin, in the midst of me trying to distract myself, I couldn't shake this fear. I couldn't shake the fear that there was a God. Out there, who was so big that he spoke this world into existence, and I couldn't shake this fear that I had offended him and was continually offending him. Now, my fear did not save me, my my fear alone of God did not save me, but you know what it did? It drove me to the cross, it drove me to the cross way more than just saying, Oh, God is love. No, I needed to know that God was awesome and fearful. The the, the old English word would be that he's awful, they, but they don't mean it in a bad way. They just mean that he's fearsome, and I don't know how to explain that. This is who our God is. We need to fear him before we can truly cling to the cross. And so if there are any of you in this room today who think that God is just a happy grandpa up in the sky, that that Jesus is just a dude carrying a lamb on his shoulders. God is a man of war, and you had better fear him. But your fear alone will not save you. You need to run to his grace, where the man of war made war against your sin, against your enemies, Satan, sin, and death. Cling to him, and you can have the God of the universe fighting for you. Let's pray. Father God, we are so thankful that while the Bible cannot possibly contain all your glory, you have chosen to reveal such a great deal of it to us. And God, we're thankful because if we look to your word, if we look to what you have revealed, we will see that you are a big and great God, bigger than our comprehension in fact We see that you are not a safe God, but you are a good God. We see that you are angry at sin, but you choose to show your love and give redemption. Oh God, let none of us neglect this great salvation purchased by the blood of Christ Jesus. And oh God, let none of us cheapen this grace and love and mercy by forgetting about your holiness, your justice. Oh God, would you sweeten the taste of your mercy and love in our lips and our, on our tongues because we see how fearsome is your wrath. We are so thankful those of us who have trusted in Jesus, that Jesus took that wrath for us. And for that, we worship you. We give you our lives. We give you our everything. And we want to spread this news in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Stand and join me as we sing the last uh, verse of Holy, Holy, Holy. sky and sea. Thank you guys again so much for coming and worshiping with me and with one another. It's just such a blessing that that we don't have to tread into these deeper waters alone, that we have one another to, to, to behold the glory of God, to grow in Him. And now we need to encourage one another to go out into our community, to go to our neighbors, go to our unsafe family members, and share the news of this fearsome, merciful, and mighty God. I want to remind you again, tomorrow, the 17th, there's that, that soup, uh, ladies' soup supper uh, at Amanda Hare's house. I hope you can go to that. And then please put in your calendar, October 29th, that work day. I love work days because they're fun. <laughs> I get to hang out with people. I may not get a whole lot done, um, but, but I enjoy hanging out with you guys. And so I hope you'll, you'll come on the 29th. Let's pray and have God send us out. Father God, you are good. And it's not a cheap, it's not a fluffy type of good, Lord. It is a deep, strong, unshakable, holy goodness. And Lord, we are so thankful that you have used your goodness to redeem us from our sin. And God, if we think about it that way, you've also used your, your holiness to, to redeem our neighbors to redeem our co-workers, to redeem lost family members. And and Lord, they have wrath awaiting them if they do not hear and believe in the message of Jesus. So God, would you help us to earnestly share the glory of who you are and uh, what your salvation is. And don't let us give a cheap version of the gospel. Let us remember and share that you are Are holy and just, and you punish sin, but you have made a way of redemption through your Son. God, would you empower us and use us this week? I pray in the name of Jesus, Amen. I love.